All right. Good morning. Good morning. We are moving into the time of, of hearing from God through preaching. One of the things that your elders are, are praying about, we don't just want to be a word church. We love the word. We're going to build everything off of the word, the Bible. We want to be a word, be a word and spirit church, right? I don't, I'm not the only person here that hears from the Spirit of Jesus. We've got a church of people that hears from the Spirit of Jesus. And so we're praying about what it looks like to be more open to the Spirit's move in our services. And one of the things that we've thought about is receiving text messages from people if they feel like the word, like, like the Spirit has moved in their heart to share something to edify and encourage the body. I received one of those text messages this morning from a gentleman at our church who says, you know, we sing a lot that song, Honey in the Rock. And as I was praying to have a quiet time, I don't know if it was this morning or when it was exactly this morning, okay, um, that he said, I felt, I felt like the Lord say that um, he reminded me of, of a section of scripture from 1 Samuel where Jonathan was doing battle and he was exhausted and famished and beaten down. And in that story, Jonathan reaches out his hand and dips his, his hand in to, to get some honey from a bee and the Lord strengthened, a beehive, and the Lord strengthened him through that. This gentleman said, I feel, like, I feel like God has a word for someone here who's in a battle, and he wants you to know that if you will reach your hand out to the rock, who is Jesus Christ, that there will be honey for whatever battle that you are facing down, and that the Lord wants to encourage you and strengthen you. And so I pass that on to you this morning. It falls in line with scripture. I don't know your situation. I don't know where you're at, but the God of heaven does. And I get the sense that he wants someone here to know that, that he will provide honey, sustenance, love, joy, peace. He will fill your cup for whatever battle that you're facing down. So I share that with you this morning as a word from the Lord and a word from the scripture for you to test and discern for yourself. So I give that. And with that, we'll move on to what I had planned to share, which is that God is just. If you were with us last week, we've been going through a sermon series called None Greater. There is no one greater than our God. So we are magnifying God most high. And last week, we looked at how God is the sovereign king overall, how he controls all things. He is above all things. Essentially, he does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, with whomever he wants, however he wants. What he says goes, period. And I quoted at length from a sermon that I read John Piper preached 15 years ago that's still preaching to my heart today. And I'll summarize it by quoting him once again what we learned about how our God is the ultimate sovereign king. Piper says, from the roll of the dice to the fall of the bird, the crawl of the worm, the movement of stars, from the falling of snow to the blowing of wind to the loss of sight to the suffering of saints... To the death of all, all of these things are under the sovereign reign and control, power, purpose, and authority of God Most High. From the least, most insignificant detail of our lives and the lives of his creatures to the most significant movements of human history and the movements of stars in heaven, God reigns supreme and controls all of those things. And last week we looked at the psalm that pointed out we can rebel against that as some of the nations and kings do and we can have our plans frustrated and live in the futile of working against this sovereign God who controls all things. Or we can rest and be comforted by the reality that God plans and purposes and controls all things. 
we can sleep because we can know the God who never does. And there is a tremendous amount of rest in that and comfort to be had. We can know that whatever we're going through, it has passed through the sovereign control, passed through the hands of our sovereign God, and whatever we're facing down is accomplishing something in us and through us according to God's good, perfect, pleasing plan and his purposes. Again, there is tremendous comfort to be found in this truth. But last week I pointed out that there is also an appearance of a contradiction, right? We learned that God is king. He's sovereign over all. He rules all things from the smallest, most insignificant to the greatest, including our choices and our decisions. And yet, we're also told in scripture that God is the perfect judge. And the contradiction is, how can God control all things and then hold his creatures responsible morally for the free decisions that we make. And I told you last week, I don't know. I don't know how to reconcile both of those two things. But like we said about the light switch, you and I don't know all of the physics and quantum mechanics and how light moves as a particle and a wave and all of that stuff. We don't understand exhaustively how electricity and quantum physics works. But we can know enough to trust that when we push the button on the light switch, the light's going to come on. The same is true of our God in heaven. We don't have to understand him exhaustively. We don't have to understand all of the mysteries to know that what he says is true and trust him to live and receive life from him. And so, again, we looked last week that God is king. This morning we're going to look at, that, at the fact that God is judge, that he will hold us morally responsible for our free decisions. I don't know how it works, but I know that the Bible presents God as being ultimately in control of all things to the nth degree. And I also know that the Bible presents us as not being robots. I don't know about you, but I don't feel like a robot. I feel like I'm free to make my own decisions. I don't understand how that works together, but I know because the Bible tells me so that both are true. And so we're not going to unpack how it works. We're just going to put the magnifying glass over our God this morning and learn that he is just. He is just. Our God is the God of perfect justice. Now, when I research for a message, I usually, I use the internet a lot. I use commentaries and stuff, but there's a website that I have that I love and I recommend to you as a good place to get information in regards to questions that you have about God and the Bible. It's called gotquestions.org. I don't know the organization behind it or even the persons behind it, but I know that they do a phenomenal job of answering life's tough questions in line with scripture. And so if you Google in a search on theology or who God is, chances are that gotquestions.org will turn up in that query towards the top of your search because it's an excellent website. And I want you to know it's a pretty safe place to go to find helpful information. So I give it to you. And as I was doing some searching about God's justice and all that, I came across an article that they wrote in response to just such a question. The question is this, what does it mean that God is just? I want to share with you the first paragraph on the article. The author writes from gotquestions.org. What does it mean that God is just? Well, he says, when we say that God is just, we mean that he is perfectly righteous in his treatment of his creatures. God shows no partiality. He commands against the mistreatment of others, and he perfectly executes vengeance against the oppressors. God is just in meeting out rewards 
And he cites a passage. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. He's just in meeting out his rewards. He is equally just in meeting out his punishments. In another verse from Colossians, he says, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favoritism. Lastly, he says, justice and righteousness, which always work hand in hand, are the foundations of God's throne. Citing again another verse from Psalm 89. This is an exceptional, concise definition of what it means for God to be just. It's exceptional, it's excellent, not just because of what it says, but because of where its frame of reference is. This author is not just writing, it's like, well, this is what I think God is. No, for each character and attribute and facet of God's justice, he links it to a Bible verse. We're not going to read all of them, but I would encourage you to write all of them down and go see where he's building his case from about who God is. This is not what gotquestions.org thinks about who God is. This is what the Bible declares, and God declares who he is. He's telling us, his creatures, this is what I am. I am just, and here's what this looks like. And so I want to unpack this definition from you from those verses. Firstly, we learn from Scripture that God is perfectly righteous in his treatment of all his creatures. Now, you're not living under a rock, so you know that there is a lot of discussion in this world today about the stewardship of our planet, about global warming and taking care of our earth and our creatures and making sure everyone's looking after. And I realize that I just said a trigger word, and many of you are probably putting on your your politic animal, right? Not your spirit animal, your politic animal, right? You're putting on your donkey or your, your elephant hat, and I need you to, I need you to throw those things out. Because we don't come to, to God and the scriptures with our political ideologies. We come to hear from God how we should think. Not, not a punch ticket on red or blue. We come to the scriptures and we let the scriptures tell us what we should think and how we should think. And here we're told that in God's justice and in his righteousness that he cares and treats his world and all of his creatures perfectly righteous. So that says set aside what you think about global warming. I don't care. God doesn't care. What he does want us to care about is that he has asked us to extend his rule and reign and be good stewards of the world that he has given to us and care for all of his creatures as being made with dignity and us human beings being made in the image of likeness of himself. So as much as you care about global warming or the stewardship of the planet and recycling, God cares more because he's just and he's righteous. And if you're a believer, you should care too. I don't know how all of that should work out. That's for us to be, to pr- be prayerful about and to flesh out according to his scriptures. But when we think about the world, we should think in terms of how do we care for this? How do we help the creatures to thrive and flourish? How do we extend the rule and reign of God in such a way that our world is cared for and that people are cared for and there's enough food and all of that? As much as we think our causes are righteous, If they're not rooted in the the God of justice and what he says, they're not righteous enough. God needs to be the one that informs how we think about our world and treating his characters and his creatures. Now, in Jonah, there's a section of scripture in Jonah. It's at the very end. If you don't know or have never read the book of Jonah, quick synopsis, the Ninevites are evil, they're wicked, they're Assyrian people, they they invented crucifixion, right? And it wasn't the cross, it was basically a, a pointy spike and kind of stuck people up on it, really not good, okay? Evil, wicked people, especially to the Israelites. God sees their evil and wickedness, and he says, 
I'm not cool with this. Hey, Jonah, be my prophet. Go tell them that they're doing evil so that they get a chance to repent. Jonah says, I ain't doing it. And the sovereign king opens the mouth of a fish and brings Jonah to do his will and do his bidding. He preaches. At the end of that, the people repent. The book of Jonah is a beautiful foreshadowing of the gospel that as God notifies us of our sin and the fact that it needs punished, if we would repent, if we would turn to him and throw ourselves upon him, then he would relent from that and put that punishment we deserve someplace else. He chooses to do that with the people of Nineveh. And Jonah is ticked because he wants justice to come down and he wants these people to be smashed and crushed. It's okay for him to receive grace, it's just not okay for those people to receive God's grace. And I love what God says at the end of Jonah, this God who treats all his creatures perfectly righteous. Listen to what God says to Jonah. It's the very last verse, I think it's Jonah 4, the very last verse. God says, Jonah, shouldn't I pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their right from their left? Shouldn't I relent and have pity on these people and give grace? They don't know their right from their left. Shouldn't I relent? Shouldn't I have pity on them? And get this, this part makes me smile every time. And Jonah, what about all the cattle? What about all those cattle? I just love that. That makes me smile. God's not only concerned, he has the people of the city numbered. He says, shouldn't I show pity on them? And what of my creatures in this land? What of the cattle? God is just. He treats all of his creatures with righteousness, perfect righteousness. Along with that, we're told that God shows no partiality. There's a lot of talk in our world about systems of injustice and systematic racisms and all of this stuff, and our world cares a lot about equity and justice. And what I want the world to hear and what I want us all to hear is that as much as we care about fairness and equity and righteousness, the Lord of heaven cares more and he does a better job at doling it out. He cares. He shows no partiality. There is no person alive that is more fair and equitable and just than our God. He stands up for the immigrant, the orphan, the widow, and he calls his people to do the same. Just a couple verses to share with you. Proverbs 31 God tells us, he says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and the helpless and see that they get justice, God says. I care about this. I want my people to be about justice and righteousness. Jeremiah 22.3 tells us that this is what the Lord says. Be fair-minded and just. Do what is right. Help those who have been robbed. Rescue them from their oppressors. Quit your evil deeds. Do not mistreat the foreigners, the orphans, the widows. Stop murdering the innocent. Again, we need to set aside our political animals for a second and ask the Lord what he would want us to be about. And here we see our parties miss it. Both parties are weak in different areas. God says, I want you to be for the cause of the immigrant, whether legal or illegal. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. He doesn't specify what that looks like, but as Christians, we should care for people who are mistreated and downtrodden, and if they're here, we should want to help them. That's for us to figure out what that help looks like. That's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin, he says, I want you to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. Is there any more vulnerable person than a child 
in their mother's womb who cannot speak up for themselves. God says, I want you to speak up on behalf and for those individuals. Do you see how we cannot wear our spirit animal or our, our, our political animal hats? We need the Bible to inform our thinking, not our ideologies. The spirit of Jesus needs to lead and guide us. And our God says, I care and I'm just. And I want you to plead the case for people who cannot plead the case for themselves. To come to bat for the innocent, for the orphan, for the widow, for the immigrant. He says, give justice in Psalm 146 to the oppressed and give food to the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are weighed down. The Lord loves the godly. The Lord protects the foreigners among us. He cares for the orphan and the widow, but he frustrates the plan of the wicked. Friends, as much as you care about whatever your cause is for justice, God cares more. He treats all his creatures with perfect righteousness. He shows no favoritism or partiality. He commands against the mistreatment of others, Zechariah 7.10. He perfectly executes vengeance against the oppressors, 2 Thessalonians 1.6 and Romans 12.19. He is just and equitable and fair in his treatment of all his creatures, and he is just and fair in both meeting out his rewards as well as his punishments. This is where things start to get a little bit heavy. We love to talk about rewards, right? Everybody gets a trophy. What we don't like to talk about is living and dealing with the consequences of of our sin and living under the righteous and just punishment of a God who is holy and cannot allow our sin to go unpunished. When we start to talk about punishment and judgment and hell, we start to get uncomfortable. And there's an aspect to that that's healthy, but we shouldn't just get uncomfortable. There's another aspect to that where we should say, praise the Lord of heaven that he is just. I've used this illustration before. I'm going to use it again now. How many of y'all like an unjust judge who takes bribes? Nobody, right? Of course we don't. We all remember, right? We all remember a couple years back that poor young girl from Delta who was riding her bike and minding her own business and some wicked man kidnapped her and murdered her. And I remember having conversations with many of you about how horrible that was and how heinous that was. And your heart cries out for justice to be served. Yes and amen. Now imagine that 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 guy walked into a courtroom to an unrighteous judge who listened and said, you know, I hear all the crimes that you committed and I know you've served a, a little bit of time already. I think you learned your lesson. Not guilty. And let him go. There is not a single person in here that would be okay with that. Why is that? It's because you and I were created in the image of a God who is just, perfectly just. And within our hearts, whether we're black or white or brown or yellow, doesn't matter where our ethnicity is, doesn't matter what our age is, doesn't even matter what our religion is. Because we're created in the image of a God who is just, we can look out at the world and we can say, that is unfair. That is wrong. That that young girl should have her future stolen from her by a man who is insane and evil and wicked. That deserves justice. And when it was served, and it was served, he got the death penalty. We can look at that and we can say, praise God for his justice. 
So there's a part of this when we talk about God being just and doling out his punishments, we should say, praise the Lord. Praise God that eventually, either through the court systems that God ordains and authorizes through his authority to hold back and restrain evil, justice will be served. Or through the end time when Jesus comes back as supreme king and if people choose to never bend the knee and not put themselves in him, that justice and vengeance and wrath will be paid. Or if people say, I know I'm sinful and I need a savior and I will put myself at the mercy of this just king and God's justice will be paid on the cross in my place. We should say yes and amen that God is just because it means that all of the wrong and evil that you and I see will one day get its due. We should say yes and amen and we should also say, woe is me. Woe is me who must also stand before this just and holy and righteous judge. I told you last week, It's not okay for us to read the Bible as a set of binoculars and look out there at what all those people are doing. It's really easy for us to point a finger at a serial killer. And while we might not be serial killers, do you know what the Bible says we are apart from Jesus? Sinful and and, and deserving of the wrath of God and punishment in hell, yet for the grace of God. And the beauty of the gospel is that God is perfectly just but it's not a cold justice. He's a perfect, loving justice. And he says, I love you, and my justice will be served. But because I love you, I am going to provide a way for you to take that debt that you owe me and to hand that to someone else for them to repay it. I am going to give you a substitute to atone for your sins and receive the judgment that you deserve. Church, this is a theological principle called the penal substitutionary atonement. And it's one of the most beautiful and ridiculous, gracious things that God has ever done in the history of mankind. He says, you owe me an infinite debt that deserves punishment and justice. But because I love you, I will take the penalty you deserve and I will put it on a substitute Jesus Christ, who will make atonement and receive the penalty you deserve in your place if you would trust him as your God and your Savior and your Lord. If you're here this morning and you have never made that decision, please don't wait. You can today escape the judgment of God and receive grace if you would trust and depend on Jesus if you would give your life to him and make your first step to say, not my will, Lord, but yours. Save me. Help me live according to your word. My friends, we could talk all day about the penal substitutionary substitutionary atonement. We're not going to. Rather, I thought it might be more helpful to read a prayer from from someone who understands what it means for God to be just and supreme and sovereign king. His name is David. So we're going to read through Psalm 25 together. I'm just going to read a couple verses, and I hope you can see how understanding that God is righteous and how he is supremely sovereign over all, how those two things should inform our thinking and our prayer life by examining a prayer from King David. Psalm 25, verse 1, it says this, O Lord, I give you my life. I give my life to you. I trust in you, my God. David says, 
I trust you because you're just, because you're in control, because you have the ultimate power and authority. You're good, you're righteous, you're just, and you're overall. You don't show favoritism, you're fair, you're righteous in your treatment of all creatures, and so I trust you. I give you my life. I surrender to you. I give myself to you. And he continues in verse 2, do not let me be disgraced or let my enemies rejoice in my defeat. David's prayer, he says, God, bring justice to bear upon my life. Don't let me be disgraced. Take care of my enemies. Friends, if you're here this morning and you've been sinned against, you've been wronged, I want you to know God sees, he sees you. And you can ask him to bring justice to bear on your behalf. It's not your prerogative to bring about vengeance. Vengeance is not ours. It's the Lord. You can turn those people over to God and know that he will take care of whatever that sin is, either through the blood of Christ or through the last judgment when Christ comes again. As Christians, we're not called to take revenge or vengeance into our own hand. But because God is just, we can plead with him to take revenge and vengeance into his hands. Why? Because of verse 3. No one who trusts in you, God, will ever be disgraced, but disgrace comes to those who try to deceive others. He continues in verse 4. Show me the right path, O Lord. Point out the road for me to follow. Lead me by your truth and teach me, for you are the God who saves me. All day long I put my hope in you. David prays. He says, God, because you are just, because you reward and punish the deeds of men without partiality, without favoritism, I will hope in you. And before David turns the Bible into a set of binoculars, before he starts calling curses down on all those people, look at them, look at what they're doing, bring the pain, bring the punishment. Before he starts to do that, he holds the mirror of scriptures up before him and he looks upon himself. He senses his own offenses and the rightness of God to bring judgment against him. And he moves on to verse 6. He says, Remember, O Lord, your compassion and unfailing love, which you have shown from long ages past. Do not remember the rebellious sins of my youth. Remember me in light of your unfailing love, for you are merciful, O Lord. I hope you can see the gospel dripping in these verses. David prays, Don't judge me, Lord, in your justice. I know I deserve it, but don't give me what I deserve. Not because of my works, but because of your works and your name. Remember me not in the light of of your justice, but in the light of your unfailing love. Grant me mercy and reward rather than punishment. And church, God is able to do this because if you put yourself in to Jesus, it's not about what you do. It's about what has already been done. And Jesus says, it is finished. Come unto me. Receive grace and mercy, not what you deserve. Receive favor. David says, choose me. Choose me, God. Choose to look upon me favorably. Friend, if you put yourself in Jesus, God says, I will look upon you in favor and grace rather than judgment. You will find refuge for your souls in Christ. Mercy instead of judgment. Verse 8, the Lord is good and does what is right. He shows the proper path to those who go astray. He leads the humble in doing what is right. 
The humble. Notice what it doesn't say. He doesn't say he leads the proud in doing what is right. Those of us who think we know what, what good and evil is, those of us who sit on our high horse and we look out of the world in judgment and we say, this is wrong and this is right and I know better and you should listen to me. God says, I don't, I don't lead those people with unfailing love. No, he says, I lead my people who are humble with unfailing love. Those who look to me to define what is right and wrong. Those who look to me as the sovereign king and ultimate judge. Those who come under me as the Lord and Savior. Those are who I will lead with unfailing love and righteousness. And how does this God of justice lead the humble? Verse 10. The Lord leads with unfailing love and faithfulness. He leads those who are humble with unfailing love and faithfulness. He leads those with unfailing love and faithfulness. All who keep his covenant and obey his demands. And I don't know about you, but if you read that in honesty, you should feel a heavy load going onto your shoulders. Because I don't know about you, but I don't keep God's covenant perfectly. Daily. And I don't obey his demands perfectly. What should we do? We are under God's wrath and his judgment. David shows us Rather than give way to fear, he turns his heart in faith to a God who is not only just, but to a God who is perfectly loving as well. For the honor of your name, O Lord, forgive my many, many sins, he says. Who are those who fear you, Lord? He will show them the path they should choose. They will live in prosperity and their children will inherit the land. Why? Because of what we do? No, because of God's namesake, because of who he is. The Lord is a friend to those who fear him. He teaches them his covenant, like a good father who brings along his children. And because of this, verse 15, David says, My eyes are always on the Lord. There is none greater than him, for he rescues me from the traps of my enemy. Turn to me and have mercy, for I am alone and in deep distress, he says. My problems go from bad to worse. Oh, save me from them all. Feel my pain and see my trouble. Forgive all of my sins. See how many enemies I have and how viciously they hate me. Protect me. Rescue my life from them. Do not let me be disgraced, for in you, not in my works, in you I have taken refuge. May integrity and honesty protect me, for I put my hope in you. Oh God, ransom Israel from all its troubles. You see, David throws himself completely into the hands of a God who is just and loving. He doesn't try to hide, cover over, explain away, or justify his sin. Rather, he acknowledges his sins head on and then calls upon the name of the Lord to give him mercy rather than what he deserves, judgment. And church, he can do that and you and I can do that because of what Jesus did for each and every one of us. How good is our God? He's so good. He is just. He is the sovereign king. There is truly none greater than him. Now, to close, I briefly want to give a word about forgiveness. Because God is just, you can forgive. We talk a lot about people being found in Jesus. That's beginning their journey. And we don't just want people to be found. We want them to be free. 
Friends, there is no greater binding force on the lives of Christians than our unwillingness to forgive those who have wronged us. You want to be bound up and lack the joy and freedom of Jesus in your life? Then you harbor unforgiveness in your heart towards people that wronged you. I want to help you understand what forgiveness is this morning. Forgiveness is not forgetting. It's not brushing an offense under the rug and pretending like it's never happened. When we sin against God, we incur a debt against him. And in the gospel, we're told that we can take that debt and God doesn't say there is no debt or not a big deal or I'll just wipe it away, no problem, right? That would be unjust. He says you have a debt and it must be paid. I'm willing to transfer that debt from you over here and someone else will pay for it on your behalf. So in forgiveness, God isn't saying to the one who's been wronged or abused or sinned against, he isn't saying, hey, I just need you to forget about this and sweep it under the rug and act like there's no debt there. That would be wrong. God says what is evil is evil, and to say anything otherwise would be unjust and not right. So he's not asking us to say that there is no debt. What he is inviting us to do in forgiveness is to say this person wronged me, They abused me. They mistreated me. And it's wrong and it hurts and I'm wounded. But, Lord Jesus, because you took my debt upon yourself, I am willing to take the debt that is owed against me and bring it over to you and let you be the debt collection agency to make sure that justice is served. I am willing to relinquish my right to get even, my right to be repaid, my right to take vengeance myself. There's a debt, and it's big. But I'm going to walk this person from the dungeon of my soul where I've kept them in bitterness and resentment, and I'm going to walk them hand in hand by prayer to the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, you deal with them. You deal with them. I'm going to forgive them. I'm going to release that debt to you. I'm not going to be the debt collector any longer. I'm going to put it here knowing that you're sovereign, that you know all, that you see all, and you are perfectly just, and you promised that if I hand you this debt, that it will be repaid, either through the blood of Jesus and the repentance of that individual for the sin. It will be covered over and paid for on the cross, or if they choose and refuse to deny the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God says, at the end, I'm going to come in power and every deed will be rewarded or punished according to my perfect justice. They will get their due, either on the cross or through my judgment. And you can take that to the bank. Loved ones, do not leave here today harboring unforgiveness in your heart towards people that have wronged you. Don't do it. It's like a cork in a bottle of God's grace and love. If you want to be free, you need to forgive. God commands it. And if you have received that forgiveness from Jesus, how could you withhold it from others? Unforgiveness is the poison you take hoping that someone else will drop dead. You're only hurting yourself. Forgive. Forgive as Jesus forgave you and be free and be free. The band can come up, and we're going to do something that I don't normally do. We're going to conclude by saying a prayer together. It's the Lord's Prayer, and if you're like, man, I don't really know the Lord's Prayer, that's okay. 
I have it up on the screen so you can read along with me, but I want us to stand so you can all stand right now. And we're gonna say this prayer together because this prayer acknowledges that God is sovereign, that he is good and in control, and that he is also just. And so I think it gets at the heart of what we've been preaching about for the last two weeks. So let's say it together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray and then we can worship this just God together. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are just. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you have made a way for us to know you, not just as the just king, but the perfect loving king. And through Jesus, you've made a way for us to escape judgment and receive grace and favor and mercy. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who has not yet received that grace and mercy, would you move our hearts to take that step and to say, Jesus, I deserve punishment, but if you would take my punishment, I'll let you. Help me live under your rule and your reign. Teach me to love you and live in light of your grace. For those of us who need to hand over people in our lives that we have chosen to harbor for unforgiveness towards, would the gospel move mightily in our hearts this morning and would the same forgiveness that you've offered to us in Jesus move through us, from us, to those who have wronged us. Thank you that you've told us you're just and that we can know when we turn people over to you and their debts that they owe us that you will repay. You will repay. We love you, Lord. What a happy day it is to come under your grace and escape your judgment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.